Hi, my name is Bill Kennedy, and welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. This is where we get to uh, interview and talk to people in the tech industry, but we try to have a more intimate conversation instead of just diving deep into technical know-how and things like that. And today, so excited. Today, my guest is John Arundel from, where are you from, John? You're there in the UK, right? Yeah, I'm from Cornwall, England. Cornwall. Awesome. So we got John today from Cornwall. And I'm really excited to talk to you, John, because, you know, we've never met. I don't think we've ever met. Now we know each other from Twitter. And you're now writing a series of Go books, which I got to review that last blog post you did. Your writing is excellent. So it's, it's always nice to meet somebody who can write as well as you do. So that's exciting. Coming from you, that means a lot. You know, I read a lot of stuff and it's a skill. I don't know how to say it, but I love your writing. And the new Go book that you had just come out for Learning Go is excellent too. So I'm really, really excited. You've been in the industry for a while now, right? How long have you been in this industry at this point? Like 30 years, maybe? Yeah, a good long time. Probably more years than I care to specify exactly. (laughs) That's right. I was trying to... Hold back uh, on that. (laughs) Suffice it to say that I've picked up a few gray hairs. Yeah. And so I think one of the things I want to try to get to in the hours, how you stumbled upon Go, right? But I'd love to kind of start maybe more from the beginning. I love hearing stories about how people got started with computers and programming. So what is your maybe first memories of hitting the keyboard and getting involved in learning or writing code or computers in general. Yeah, we tend to start early, don't we, in this game? <laughs> you know, you don't find people who are kind of a uh, carpenter all their life and then they suddenly discover computers <laughs> in midlife. Just doesn't seem to happen that way. Didn't with me very, very early on, I think when I was uh, about nine years old, my mum quit smoking, which was a great idea. And with the money that she saved from not smoking, she decided she's going to buy something, what to buy. Maybe one of these newfangled computers we're hearing about. They're in all the news in the early 80s. So she buys a computer and it comes, she unboxes it and goes through all the setup. And she's kind of like, right, I'm going to get to grips with this now. And she does, which is really cool. So my mom rocks. She was my first computer science instructor. So she had me up and running writing basic programs pretty quickly. And I remember that she called me in to be the guinea pig for her new program. And the program says, what is your name? I type in my name is John and it says, hello, John. (laughs) And I'm completely blown away with this because the machine knows my name. How does it know my name? I mean, I'm having a conversation with the machine. This is fantastic. That's amazing. What was your mom's background? She's not got a technical background at all. She's got a PhD in criminology and uh, degrees in languages and so forth like this. So I think she is more focused towards me, really. I think she was thinking maybe this is something I should introduce John to at an early age, right? You know, this could be a good career for him kind of thing. So did you have to compete for time on this computer now? Because your mom's really into it, and now you're getting kind of sucked into it. Yeah, she was definitely into it. But I think she recognized that me and the machine had an even more special relationship. (laughs) Clearly, we were made for each other, me and this little box, the Sinclair ZX81, which was a fantastic machine, I have to say. Wow. Okay. So 
just for some time reference, at this point, are you in high school? Are you in, I guess in the U.S., we call it middle school or junior high school? Like Yeah, middle school. You're in middle school. Okay. That's right. Uh, pretty soon okay. they get the same computer at school. And it's kind of something, of course, nowadays, no one would think that would be remarkable for a computer to be in school. But this was a time when it was a very special and magical box, which everybody had to kind of be introduced to. People would very gingerly approach the sacred machine and press the key. And it would kind of go bleep, error. You go, oh no, maybe I broke <laughs> the computer. This is so expensive. Did you end up in high school having formal classes or was it also trying to compete for some time on the machine? Yeah, I think I did. I think basically there was some computing that we were sort of expected to do as part of school. And they did that, but also every other moment was legally or even not legally allowable i would sneak in there and be playing with this thing and what are some of the things that you be were you writing i remember at that same time at around that same age i was writing in basic as many video games not like what you see today obviously yeah. but i was writing a lot of games what kind of programs were you writing yeah absolutely i was writing the world's worst games <laughs> so <laughs> the adventure game with three rooms and no puzzles <laughs> but a very slowly loading from tape and so forth. But I think I was completely in love with this idea that basically the machine can do anything. If you can figure out what instructions to give the machine, it can do basically anything you want it to. And there's nothing else in the world like that, is there? And before the computer, there really wasn't any such thing. The only thing I can think of which gets close is reading books and being transported into this imaginary world of a book where you can go anywhere. Computer is like that, but it's more interactive, right? You can create the world. Yeah, I think for me, it was two things. It was having complete domain over the machine, right? And the more you learn, the more you could do. But it was also the idea that if you made a mistake, you could hit the delete key. <laughs> yeah. Where when I'm working in my house and I try to put something on the wall and I go to the wrong spot on the wall, now it's a major nightmare to clean that up. Yeah. <laughs> But on the computer, I'm always like, oh, I wish I could just hit the delete key and start over. And I can't, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's like anything you can imagine, you can create if only you know how to issue the right instructions. So it is magic in effect, isn't it? I mean, we're describing magic. Yeah. If you know, yeah. If you know okay. the spell, you can have whatever you want. That I love. If you know the spell, then you can create that result that you want, right? Yeah, actually, that's really cool. I see that same excitement in the people that I teach programming to today. You know, at some point, they just suddenly get this idea and they take off with it. It's wonderful to see that because I remember what it felt like. I still feel that when I solve a problem that I thought was going to be challenging or something I really wanted to make happen and then it happens. I still feel that. Don't you still feel that a little bit today? All right, so you're in high school and you're spending as much time as... Did you play sports at all either? Or You must have had other activities and hobbies too, or was it really your focus was there when you had free time? I wasn't really a big sports guy, but I wasn't exactly a classic nerd either. So <laughs> something in the middle. Like I think I definitely enjoyed playing with the computer, but of course I didn't have my own at this point, apart from the very simple basic machine but in school i'm being introduced to things like logo which is incredible i don't know if kids still use logo but essentially we're learning programming through graphics effectively if you remember the original 
logo systems in the 60s the computer is actually connected to a little robot the turtle which can move around and you can give it instructions like go forward 10 turn right and it had a pen attached to it so you could actually draw on a piece of paper so people would write instructions in logo to draw a particular figure and of course you have the idea of functions right you know you can compose these behaviors and you can repeat them and you can do loops so like draw a circle 10 times but slightly offset each time so we can create beautiful designs yeah i never got to experience any of that so that's super interesting yeah we didn't have a real robot but it would draw on screen so as you're getting through high school and then you're thinking about the next steps of what you're going to do is the idea of being a software developer or or a field in the computer industry kind of on your radar screen at that point? Yeah, I don't think I really had a clear idea exactly what I would be doing, but I'm pretty convinced that my future lies with these machines somehow. You know, I don't exactly know what it's going to be, but because this is the most fun thing I can imagine doing, and I seem to be reasonably good at it, it seems like a good fit. So what happens now after high school? You go to university, what do you do next? Yeah, that's right. So I go to college to study computing because it seems like the obvious thing. I want to learn some CS concepts and I want to get to use the kind of computers that the university has. And I remember we have a kind of an open day where students can come to the university, have a tour around and see what the facilities are and so forth. And I come to University of East Anglia in Norwich, England. And they have a fantastic computer system set up. They have a transputer machine. This is another blast from the past. <laughs> you remember transputers, so this was early 90s. So we're talking, you know, massively parallel machines, where essentially, you know, I think you have something like a board with 1,024 slots, and you just plug in as many of these parallel processes as you can buy. And I think the university could buy quite a few of them. So they're showing us this machine and saying, look at the kind of machines that you'll be using when you come here. And of course... Did I ever get any time on that transputer? <laughs> I did not. Um, I think that was probably for the postgrads. They kept it jealously to themselves. But we had some sun machines, I think. We had two spark stations for several hundred undergrads. So, you know, we would have an account on there. We could go in and we can compile C programs and we can do like this. That was pretty awesome because, I mean, I did not have a sun machine of my own at home. <laughs> I didn't have a Unix machine or anything like this to play with. So this is big stuff, big iron. So then your degree there is really focused on that Unix operating system and software development. Like, What I like asking is, obviously, the tech you were working on back then isn't the tech you're working on today, right? We were based on uh, Macs in the lab. So these were, I think, Mac 2s and LCs when they came out. So having a color Mac, that was amazing. First of all, the Mac itself was an incredible revelation to me because if you've used a clunky old PC with Windows 1.0. It's like, okay, it's graphics, but we feel like this could be more. And then you see a Mac and you're kind of like, wow, this is clearly how it's supposed to be. you know. And when the Mac goes color, this is incredible. It's like that moment in The Wizard of Oz where we go to color and suddenly it's like stepping through into a new world. Amazing. Yeah, I remember when I got my first color graphics card for a DOS machine I had. Actually, I have a similar story with my mom. My mom ended up having a computer and she got the first graphics card that was colored. Boy, I wanted that thing so bad. <laughs> yeah. But you're right, it was like magical. It just watching it all progress was magical. From the university degree, what do you feel like you got the most out of that? And what are you still kind of carrying on 
from today with that degree that you got? Yeah, well, this is something people still debate about a lot, isn't it? Whether a CS degree or something adjacent to that is actually really important for a software engineering career or a tech career in general. And people who have such a degree tend to think it's really important. And those who don't tend to think it's irrelevant and you can manage fine without it. I was expecting to learn to program and there was a lot less of that than I expected. And the programming we were doing was initially in Modular 2, which as you know is an offshoot of Pascal. I can hardly say that that skilled me up for today's workplace, but I'm sure as learning really important programming concepts, functions, modules, designing APIs and how to structure projects, all of this stuff, which is still really important today. The language syntax changes, but that problem about how to design and organize your packages is still with us, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's the universal problem since we've, right? I mean, programming languages have come out almost to just solve that problem alone. How do you package and organize your source code so you can build large systems, right? Right. And I think that's something that, you know, when I was writing my basic programs on the ZX81 and I'm writing 10 print John rules 20 go to 10. This is great. And it's a fantastic thing that you can have this machine, which you just turn it on and you can start coding and running your programs and seeing them happen. That's not true of computers now, is it? If you buy a Mac, you don't just open it up and start programming it. You have to install language tools and editor and set up your environment. And so there's a bit more of a barrier there, I think, although nerdy kids like me have no problem overcoming that. But when I get to college and I start programming Unix and I start programming on the Macs in C and we have this beautiful GUI interface, applications, menus, windows, mice, and so forth. And when I start to try to write that kind of application myself, I'm a bit dismayed by how difficult that is. Because <laughs> if you remember the original inside Macintosh books, this SDK book is kind of a whole wall of books, each of them very fat, about 10 volumes or something. And this is basically the Mac OS API reference. And so I'm kind of like, okay, let's try and do something like, let's display a window. That can't be too hard. <laughs> and there's <laughs> approximately, you know, 250 lines of boilerplate C, lots of header files and stuff just to get a window up. And I'm thinking, wow, this is harder than I expected. Maybe I can display some text. Three months later, I've managed to display some text. And now I want a scroll bar and I'm thinking, okay, I expect there's some kind of scroll bar component that I can include. But no, if you want a scroll bar, you have to draw a rectangular area at the right-hand side of your window. You have to draw a smaller rectangle representing the scroll thumb, and you have to handle the mouse events that move it and so forth. And I'm thinking, look, this feels like it should be a solved problem. Scrolling text, like I can't believe I have to implement the scroll bar myself. Every Mac app has a scroll bar, and I can't believe every programmer reinvented it themselves. So we're in the very early days then, I think, where... You know, we didn't really have this concept of completely reusable components that you can just drag and drop into your app, if you like. Were you getting discouraged at all during that time where you started to get frustrated or you just took it as a challenge? And Yeah, I think I pretty much was. I was like, wow, GUI programming is super hard. And if you get even the slightest thing wrong, because, of course, this is C, so you will be getting things wrong all the time. <laughs> And your beautiful GUI disappears to be replaced by a screen full of hex <laughs> in text <laughs> mode. You know, you drop into this Mac debugger interface, which says, yeah, your registers contain X, Y, and Z is your stack. And I'm like, wow, what's this? 
You know, wow. suddenly the beautiful interface disappeared and we saw behind the curtain. Well, I still think front end development, GUI development's hard. I, as soon as you add more than three buttons on a screen, my brain shuts down. I've never been able to write clean code that maintains good mental models in these event-based software. Just can't do it. I've tried. Yeah, exactly. It's really hard. So, but I think, you know, I was struggling. If you asked me to write simple programs, I could definitely do that. But when the code grows to a certain point and you have more than a certain number of levels of abstraction, it just becomes really hard to organize it in my mind, how to make things logical and readable. And I don't think I still have the source code of any of those programs. And I'm kind of glad of that because if anybody saw them now, it would be like, ah, this is horrible. <laughs> That's um, funny. Talk to me about now, you finish university. Are you able to find a job right away? What's happening right as you graduate? university yeah so oddly enough i apply for a bunch of jobs as a programmer sort of expected path out of a cs degree and i don't get any of them so i don't remember whether i think of myself as a hot programmer at this point but i'm here to tell you hiring managers certainly did not think of me that way so for whatever reason that didn't pan out and i actually get a job as a technical writer with a computer company. So this is Scion, who used to make little palm tops back in the 90s. We don't even have palm tops anymore because we just have smartphones. But before we had smartphones, we had a device which is everything a smartphone is except just not being a phone. Yeah, I remember having a couple of those. Yeah, really nice machines. And one thing I learned from working with the super smart people who programmed the application for these. And of course it had a bespoke OS, you know, people are not buying in and licensing something like Android. Of course, they're creating the whole thing from scratch and maintaining it themselves. And because these devices are so tiny, I forget what size of memory they had, but it's some kind of solid state disk, which is tiny. So there's not much room for apps and user data. And then the memory is also tiny. So there's not much room for stuff. So these guys were the ultimate defensive programmers. Everything they do, they basically have to figure that we may run out of memory at any second. We may not have any disk space. We may run out of battery or something like this. So, But you know, we also can't afford a great deal of code to check for these situations. So when they want to add a feature to, let's say, the calendar application, all of the space allowable is already completely taken up. Every byte is used. So if they want to add a feature, basically they have to figure out how many bytes can we save by refactoring the existing code? Okay, we spent a month on this and we freed up 18 bytes. Wow. <laughs> can we do the feature in 18 bytes? And very ingenious, by means of very ingenious programming, they could. I think that taught me a lot about the power of optimization and these sort of things. Now, by comparison, today we have virtually infinite computing resources. You know, the CPU is as fast as. You could ever want, you've got all the memory in the world, you've got all the disk in the world, you're never going to run out. So we don't think about programming in quite the same way these days. Not at all. So while you're a technical writer there, they're letting you get your hands dirty in the code as well? Not really. I mean, I, I'm talking to all of the developers and learning a lot, obviously, because I'm having to learn from them. How does it work technically? And then I need to go away and try and figure out how to explain this in English, right? You know, these folks are very good technically. They understand how the system works. And it's my job to basically understand it to a certain level in the way they do, and then try and figure out how to explain that to someone 
You were writing technical documentation for the engineers or you were writing user facing? Both. So I'm writing the user manuals like, congratulations on buying your new Scion palm top. Here's how to get started. Type in your address details and so forth. Here's how to set your bingly bingly beep alerts for your meetings and whatever. But yeah, I'm also writing programmer documentation for APIs. Here's how to use our CSDK to write apps for the machine and things like this. So I learned a huge amount from that. And probably the most valuable lesson I learned was that this stuff is hard. It's just, just really, really difficult to explain complex technical concepts in user-friendly language because whatever I would write would come back with red ink all over it saying, nobody's gonna understand this, rewrite until it's clearer. Rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. And you know, I still go through this process today. I write a draft of a book and I send it out to beta readers and they send it back and say, yeah, I didn't understand this entire chapter. <laughs> Can you have another go? <laughs> yeah, well, I get that. Um, but this is interesting because you almost got a whole formal education in this first job in technical writing and, and teaching. Yeah, that's right. Wow. I have two questions. Now. This is why I love digging in. While you were writing the technical documentation, you must have been building or attempting to build or add-ons or features or something to the device too, right? I mean, you're doing programming. Yeah, I was definitely doing a lot of hobby programming and stuff on the side. And I guess I didn't even really think about the connection between those two things. I just see it as this is an activity that I do. It's a fun hobby. Meanwhile, now I'm at work. So I'm not really thinking about myself as professional programmer, professional engineer, whatever. But nonetheless, those lessons are seeping in and I'm surrounded by super smart people who are great programmers and I'm absorbing stuff from them without even realizing it. Were you at all discouraged, upset that you were doing technical writing and you took this job because you needed it and now they have you doing technical writing and at the time, did you ever feel discouraged or negative about what you were doing? Even though I think when you look back on it today, this was probably the best thing that could have happened to you coming out of university. Yeah, I think that's right. And I would see it that way now in that I think, how dare they not recognize my incipient genius as uh, <laughs> the world's greatest engineer? I certainly didn't feel like that then. I was absolutely amazed and gratified that I have a job and I get to sit in a nice warm room playing with computers and I get free coffee. I mean, I could be doing real work, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, writing's real work. I mean, let's be honest. I find it to be real work. I have to actually get myself a little pumped up to do it because I know how much work there is involved once you start, right? Oh, yeah, it definitely is work. But at the same time, it's enjoyable work, mostly, that we can do in a comfortable environment. It's very different to something like, you know, people who get up early in the morning and go out and work construction all day. I mean, that would kill me within hours. <laughs> so, you know, I think <laughs> yeah, I every it. day that I get to have this career. So I think I thought I'm working for a really cool company. I'm in the tech industry. This is great. I'm working with computers, which is what I want to do. I'm learning lots of cool stuff. And I guess I wasn't the world's greatest technical writer either, because I kind of drifted sideways into sysadmin. Ah, how long were you at this company? I think three or four years. So within a year or two, you start moving into sysadmin stuff. So what kind of sysadmin stuff did they have at this company? Um, you, so it was pretty basic, but they had things like they had an IIS server with a little intranet 
don't think they even had that name yet, but they had stuff like this. And they had file sharing and they had email servers and they also had news groups. So this is something that goes way back. At university, I had been introduced to Usenet. And this was a complete revelation to me because I'd been on BBSs and things like this before. But to realize that there was a huge world of people out there all arguing about programming was fantastic. And I'm like, great. I like to argue about that stuff too. So uh, I found my <laughs> spiritual home here. So they had Usenet at this company and they had a little new server to run it. And it was Unix because all of this stuff was Unix only, of course. And they said, you know, it's like a medical emergency on a plane. Does anybody know Unix? <laughs> we have this server that we need to do stuff with. Is there a Unix expert on the plane? And I'm like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Yeah, unlike the girl in Jurassic Park. This is a Unix system. I know this. <laughs> uh, that was great fun. So I was kind of become the de facto system administrator by virtue of the fact that I've done this stuff before. So I ended up running basically a lot of the internal IT systems here. Wow. Okay. So you get in as a technical writer, you got to do both user kind of manuals, technical manuals, you're digging deep into the code. Now they need somebody to help with ops, which you jump in there. You're four years in, I guess in today's standards, it's a long time. Back then we stayed in companies for a while. So what happens that you leave in four years? Is it something like you're ready to move on? Is an opportunity jump into your lap? What happens? Where do you end up? Yeah, so essentially, you know, I'm still not being allowed to write any programs, but I'm allowed to turn the machines on and off now, which is good. So I'm making progress in that department. And in fact, I've become more of a technical communications guy in that they say we need to write things like press releases and so forth. And what we actually need for this is somebody who can write, and we have a ton of great writers. We also need someone who actually understands the technical side, and we have a ton of technical people. There's very few people in the overlap of that Venn diagram, if you like. You are technical, but at the same time, you can express yourself in words that regular people can understand. So that turns out to be kind of my niche, if you like. And at some point, I think the entire marketing function gets outsourced, so I'm no longer needed there. And I move to a job where it's full-on IT, so I am IT guy in this software company. And this is really cool because I think I've kind of blagged my way into this a little bit. <laughs> because in the interview, the guy who was interviewing me asked me a bunch of Unix questions. And I'm like, great, <laughs> I've got this. <laughs> you know, I get Ask me what an inode is, and I actually know this, which is really cool. I've never needed that knowledge since, but it came in handy at the time. So he's like, wow, this guy knows it all. He's our IT man. And he says, right, here's your first job. Here's a bunch of Windows PCs in boxes. Your job is to put them together, set them up, get them all ready. And I'm kind of like, wow. <laughs> okay, are you sure? Because I never opened up a PC before. <laughs> Shouldn't I be qualified or something for this? He says, oh, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> here's a screwdriver. Get on with it. So that's a baptism of fire. And I'm pretty sure not all of those PCs worked after I'd finished with them. But, you know, I'm learning swiftly on the job as we had to do in those days. So that must have been a more of a business oriented office if they're bringing in PCs and Windows, right? Yeah. Or they, so you're still not programming, though, right? You're still just kind of doing ops and you're maintaining the PCs and you're maintaining the networks and the file systems for this company. Yeah, that's right. So, and I'm also 
um, supporting web servers that are running websites and also the software that we're making is for websites. So this is a very early kind of CMS or e-commerce system where it's essentially a bunch of C libraries, which is you want to write your online shop application, you write it in C and you use these libraries and they give you things like shopping cart, user sessions, payments, product catalog, all of this kind of thing. And so I'm supporting these developers with their language tools, build process, releases, and so forth. And I'm also looking after web servers. So at some point, you transition into both software development and training. So when does all that happen? When do you make that transition? How does that transition occur? Yeah, so I think basically what happens is you and I know and all sysadmins know that there's actually a ton of programming involved just in maintaining systems, all the shell scripts and automation and things like this that happen behind the scenes. And I'm administering a bunch of these systems and I have config management problems. This won't surprise anybody. As soon as you have more than one machine, you have a config management problem. So I'm working on little scripts and things like this. And of course, I'm talking to the developers and they're saying, yeah, you know, I use make files and things like this. Why don't you do this? And so I'm learning a bunch of ideas from them. And they're saying, hey, we put our code in source control. How about you? So I'm like, yeah, this is an interesting idea. All of these scripts and config files and setup routines I have are actually code as well, aren't they? So why not treat those like code? Why not version them, deploy them properly? All of this kind of thing. So, and when the company starts to produce shrink wrap products, which people can buy and they install on their own machines, they need installation scripts. They need setup. They need manuals, of course. So I'm working on that. And I'm also writing the installers and configurators and things like this. So uh, at some point, I realize I've become kind of a build tools guy. What I'm doing is basically DevOps, although we don't have that term yet. So the work was going on before we had a name for it, but this is basically DevOps stuff. So everything between the application code and where that hits the metal is basically my domain. And so today you have your own consulting company, right? You're consulting on projects. You're still doing your technical writing, you're writing books. How do you get from working there to starting your own business? Talk a little bit about how that ends up happening. Yeah, so this company that I'm essentially sort of learning the craft of programming through writing install tools and system maintenance and config management scripts and things. And this company is, so this is about 2000. So everybody's very excited. Tech stocks are really high. Stock options are a good thing to have. And then one day they went. <laughs> this market just disappears completely and the company is defunct and we're all having to find our way into other jobs. And so the job I get is working in a data center for a hosting company because I know Unix. <laughs> so thanks again, Unix. <laughs> you know, it stood me in good stead over the years. So again, so I'm building SunOS and Solaris machines, and I'm seeing my first Linux machines. And you hear about sometimes, you don't get this so much anymore, but when you had machines in racks in data centers and you would have a thing called intelligent hands, right? You know, this is like if a CD needs to be inserted or a machine needs to be power cycled or something like this, reconfigure a router. Well, I was the intelligent hands. So, 
you know this, this term is quite broad nonetheless that's what i'm doing i am working the night shift in the data center i am racking and cabling i'm crawling around in the roof space running cat5 i'm pulling cards on cisco switches and i'm changing memory sims and things like this so this is great i'm learning tons of useful hardware stuff and how big isps actually work how big hosting operations work when you have 10 computers to run you can do it in a kind of an ad hoc way when you have 10,000 computers to run it's a different story you need a great deal of automation so i'm i'm learning how all of this works that's new back then the idea of you having your own data center with 10,000 machines i mean yeah HashiCorp wasn't around yet to help. Very much so, yeah. So a lot of this stuff was done. You would effectively net boot machines with a profile which installs the OS from some jumpstart TFTP server. It installs a pre-configured OS with the packages you need and things like this. And basically, we have a big script, not an executable script, just a paper script that we go through. And it's like, okay, log in as root, type this command, install this package, edit the host file, add these entries. And this is a long process for every machine. So I really start thinking, surely we could write programs to do some of this stuff. I mean, as you say, there were not the kind of awesome DevOps tools that we have now for configuring a bunch of machines. But I thought, unlike most of the other people that I'm working with, I am a programmer. I'm quite comfortable with this stuff. So I'm thinking, why don't we automate this? And I have to say, this was not an environment where people were encouraged to come up with ideas <laughs> for improvements and change the way things work. It's pretty much, you know, do what you're told, which is fair enough. But when I eventually leave this job and I go to working for a much smaller software company, so I'm back in the software industry where I'm more comfortable people dress in a more relaxed way. <laughs> and it's a much more laid back culture, you know, it's sort of a Silicon Valley culture, as opposed to in the hosting industry where it's quite military style. You know, a lot of these guys had been in the military, specifically mm -hmm. the United States Navy in the submarine service. And I guess the lessons of running a submarine transfer pretty well to running a data center. Uh, <laughs> but not necessarily to creating software, right? So, but I bring all of this knowledge about how do the big boys do it? If you have global companies, like I was running McDonald's web service. So you can imagine really? they, they have plenty of infrastructure and there's no shortage of money. So they have a completely replicated data center, you know, on every continent. So if one goes down, an earthquake or a dinosaur killer asteroid takes out the data center completely, that's fine, but just fail over to the other one. So I'm learning these kind of lessons and looking at what big infrastructure looks like. And I'm also now convinced that automation is the way forward. So I'm doing some of this stuff. So I'm using Puppet. Puppet has come out. This is new and very exciting. So we're using Puppet to manage machines. And this is great. So I'm effectively, I've become a programmer of Puppet code. Unix shell scripts, some Python for installers and things like this, and Puppet code. And this is super interesting to me, John, because like I said, I don't really know you, but based on what you're doing for the last couple of years, I wouldn't have guessed that you're coming out of the kind of operations side of things. Right. So and I think that's huge knowledge to have. I think too many developers don't have that and it hurts in terms of design and architecture. Yeah, it is really important. And to try and answer your question. So basically after a few years, in this job, I go independent and they say, why shouldn't I bring this kind of knowledge to lots of companies? And so I start doing this, I become an independent consultant. And basically companies would hire me and say, look, we need to set up a new infrastructure 
or web apps or whatever, or we have terrible, terrible problems with our infrastructure. Can you please fix them? And this is great because this is exactly what I love to do is when the client is telling me the long, sad story of everything that's wrong with their operations, my grin is getting bigger and bigger because I'm thinking <laughs> this is going to be so cool. You know, we're going to fix all of these problems and it's going to be great. If you show me a bunch of stuff that works, I'm not interested in that because <laughs> there's nothing for me to do. So I love to solve problems. So this is my thing, you know, and this brings us up to a couple of years ago and I am getting into Go. I couldn't tell you exactly where I first heard about Go or where I first saw it, but it must have been when it was sort of first launched to the internet and there were the usual kind of hacker news discussions about it. I was aware of this and I'm like, yeah, new trendy language on hacker news, fine you know what's the language this week i'm sure we'll never hear about it again (laughs) (laughs) so probably a few years goes by and at some point i just think to myself a couple of clients are starting to switch to developing their apps in go especially because they're moving into kubernetes and containers and they're like go seems to be the language for this stuff so we're going to move from ruby and rails or whatever to this And I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is interesting because I kind of know Ruby. I've done a ton of Ruby. I know Python pretty well. I'm always comfortable talking to the developers. I can help them debug problems in their code when it's deployed, things like this. Go, I know from nothing. So this is going to be a problem. (laughs) If I don't want to find myself out on the ledge here, I need to do a little bit of study and just get to grips with Go just so I have a nodding acquaintance with it. So I'm not completely terrified by the idea of a Go program. So I do this, I get the Go programming language book, and I think I take it home over the Christmas holidays. And I say, right, it's you and me, Go. We're going to sit down and I'm going to figure this stuff out. And that was a somewhat intense experience. (laughs) As you can imagine, you start from nothing. You sit down with that book, which is an incredible book, but maybe not the best thing for a complete beginner. Um, I think of it as more of a reference book. You know, once you've learned Go, now I'm going to dive into GOPL and uh, really figure out everything. But somehow there's a lot of swearing. There's a lot of angry words exchanged between me and the compiler. But I kind of get there. I'm able to produce simple programs with Go. And I'm kind of like, you know what? This is kind of cool. I kind of like this. I don't know exactly why, but for some reason, this language grabs me a little more than... Ruby or C or Java or any of these other things that I've used. I think of these things as tools. You have some work task you need to get done. You can use these tools to do it. Whereas with Go, I'm kind of having fun. For a long time, I've thought of programming as just being work, but all of a sudden I'm enjoying it and I'm actually sneaking time away from paid work to say, I wonder if I can write a little Go program to do this over the weekend. It's been so long, I forgot when I stopped being a hobby programmer, but all of a sudden, I started being one again. So we got 10 minutes left, and I want to explore this last piece of the puzzle I have here with you. When do you decide that you want to start training, and when do you decide to start writing these books? Because I do believe that the community is lacking the type and style of book you're writing right now. And so I'm so excited about the series that you're writing. So talk a little bit about that and why the, like, I think I know why you started writing these books because we're lacking it, but just take me there in the last 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, one of the things I always enjoyed most about the consulting work was not 
doing the work myself so much directly as teaching my clients and other people to use it. So often I would work with the ops team or the infrastructure team or whatever, and I would coach them in how to do this stuff. And very often I would learn useful stuff from them and they would learn some stuff from me and so forth. But people always said, you seem to be really good at explaining this stuff in a way that we get it. And I thought, this is good. So with the Go programming, I thought I need to do some learning. So listening to the Go Time podcast, Katrina Rowan was on there talking about exorcism.io. And I thought, this is great. This sounds like exactly what I want. I can go do code practice and I can get actual mentoring on my solutions all very well to have the automated website say sorry your program didn't compile or it didn't pass the tests or whatever what i want is some human telling me yeah what you actually want to do is this or this is how you write really idiomatic code and go like this is what real engineers do so this is great so it starts i learn on exorcism and i become a mentor on exorcism and this takes up a big amount of my time i'm having so much fun mentoring because there's 20 new people on exorcism every day have decided this is the day I'm going to learn Go, right? And I am their first contact. So this is a wonderful feeling because I can show them the stuff that I've picked up and I can kind of partake in their enthusiasm. You know, these are not jaded and world-weary programmers who've seen it all before. It's like, oh, you can't impress me with your programming languages. These are people who, like me, when I was nine years old, saying, this is so cool. The computer knows my name. How does it know my name? So this is great fun. And people are always asking me, I really like your mentoring. Can I have more of it? Is there some way that I can pay you to do this for me? And so more and more of my paid work starts to be go mentoring and go training. And people say, my company is switching to go. I have 20 devs and we need to get up to speed with go like now, today. (laughs) How quick can you get us there? So this is great. And I'm learning from trying to teach people what works and what doesn't. I find one way to explain something and people just look blankly at me like, what are you saying to me, John? (laughs) (laughs) I try another way and maybe it gets through and then I hit on something and they're like, ah, now I get it. So I'm gradually learning how to teach people to program in Go and this is really fun. So I think there's a limit to how many people I can mentor because there's only one of me and only so many hours. What I need to do is I need to put this stuff into a book so that more people can have that same exciting experience that I had when I was a little kid and just get turned on to the whole idea of programming. So this is what I've done. And I definitely don't think it's a case of there aren't any decent Go books out there. I need to write one. That would be very arrogant because there are some really excellent books, not least of all yours, which I learned from. And I thought, this is fine, but I still know from people who've told me they've read these books and they've struggled a little bit because they're complete beginners. They'd never programmed before. I don't know what a variable is. don't know what a function is. So I thought there is kind of a gap here for somebody to very gently explain in very straightforward language and not assuming any knowledge at all, just to get people over that initial hump. And then they're ready to dive into more advanced books. So what I wanted to convey was not just to teach you Go, but why this language is special, why it's a little bit magical, and why it's so much fun to program in, which is why the title is For the Love of Go. Yeah, I love the title. And I love the approach with the tests because there's, just very quickly, I mean, I teach, I'm teaching every week and I get deep into a lot of stuff, but I ended up creating a new class 
that teaches people how to write services because I felt there was a gap between I can teach you the internals and I can teach you knowledge. I can teach you how to think, but you still haven't engineered anything yet. Yeah. And so I think by leveraging the tests the way you did, you get both in that book. You get to read, you get that knowledge, and then you get to write some code and make something turn green, right? Like, yeah. I have got totally turned on to test-driven development by working with devs who used it. And it was a completely new idea to me, especially coming from the sysadmin background. You know, we don't really have tests at all. And I was like, this is fantastic because they can change anything in their program and instantly know whether they broke something. And also when they're designing it, writing the tests is helping them design the program because in order to call the function under test, they have to know its name. <laughs> so that's that's our first design problem, right? What are we going to call it? And that tells us a lot about how it works. We need to know what to pass to it. We need to know what it gives back and we need to know what we expect it to do. So I'm in love with this idea of TDD. I want to bring this to people as well. So what I don't want to do is start by teaching them a bunch of Go and then say, by the way, folks, you should be doing your tests. Now I'm going to tell you about tests. I need to tell you about tests right up front, don't I? In order for you to learn how to do stuff TDD, you need to learn the T before you can get to the D. But this is a problem because tests are actually some of the most difficult code you'll ever write. They're complicated, aren't they? I mean, we have slices of test cases and we have loops and we have comparisons and things like this. So I'm a bit blocked about how to teach people to do stuff test first. So what I come up with is basically this idea, I'm going to give you a bunch of code that has some tests. And first of all, I'm just going to get you to run the tests so you're comfortable with that. Now I'll give you a test that's failing. And you can look at the function under test and you can see hopefully it's a fairly obvious error and you can fix it. And now you have some confidence that like, yeah, I know how to use test outputs to fix my broken code. And now I'm going to say, OK, you're happy with that. I'm going to give you a test, but there's no function. So you have to write the function which passes this test. OK, you're happy with that. Now you're going to write the test and then you're going to write the function. So step by step, we build people up. You sort of start with training wheels, if you like, in that you have all the tests and functions working. And then I gradually, bit by bit, take away the scaffolding until you're standing on your own. Yeah, and you get to minimize what you have to teach in the beginning, too. You don't start teaching main functions and imports and necessarily. So Yeah, absolutely. I completely yada yada through that whole thing. I just say, yeah, don't worry about what a function is. Don't worry about any of this stuff. You are smart and you can look at this working code and you can basically figure out what you need to know. You just copy and paste and modify. And guess what? That's how real software engineers really work. <laughs> All right, John, our hour is up. So do me a favor, let everybody know how they can find you or get in touch with you, especially if they have big projects coming up where they need somebody with your experience on the ops side and on the engineering side. Yeah, they can go to bitfieldconsulting.com, which is my website. I have a blog there and you can buy the books directly from my website or you can follow Bitfield on Twitter. And have no doubt that I will constantly inform you at least three times a day what books I have and where you can buy them. Brilliant. John, thank you so much for spending an hour with us today. I learned a lot. I love the story. And I think when people hear other people's stories, they learn something about themselves too, right? And paths and directions maybe they can take. So I really appreciate taking the time to share all that with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great fun. So this is Bill Kennedy with the Arden Labs podcast. Hope to see you all again real soon.